Hi, and welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. I'm Chris Lucian, and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have John Gallagher to talk to us about reducing cost of change through design, functional domain modeling and mobbing, and joyful programming inspired by Unison. So, uh, John, would you like to uh, give an introduction before we get into our topics? Sure. Uh, hi there. My name is John Gallagher. I'm a joyful programming coach. I run my own business. And I'm also employed, but employed by a company called Bigger Pockets, who operate outside, out of the out of Denver in Colorado. I, as you can hear from my accent, I am not an American. Uh, I am English, and I live in Belfast in Northern Ireland, is part of the UK. It's it's the northern bit of Ireland, but it's a different country. But it's the same country, but it's split down the middle. It's complicated. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Uh... Let's just get right into it. Uh, reducing the cost of change through design. What, what are you thinking here? So I've been programming now. I came into programming quite late, uh, or at least I thought it was late. I was maybe early 30s when I became a professional programmer. I've been fiddling around with computers for a long time before that, since I was about 14. And so I kind of came into this thinking, I'm not a proper programmer, whatever that means. Um, and so I kind of came into a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of I'm not really good enough to do this. I've got so much to learn. And when I actually got into the industry, I remember seeing somebody's screen of jQuery. Um, I was kind of, at the time, I was building a little app at a company. And um, I'd never really seen anyone's code at this point. So I just kind of went up to him and I said, uh, can I just check out what you're doing? And he was like, oh, yeah. I said, how's it going? He said, oh, pretty well, pretty, pretty good. So he scrolled down like 16 pages of all this jQuery with no with no encapsulation, with no scent. I was just like, is this, what's this? He's like, oh, this is the production code. And there was just this kind of silence. And I went, okay then. And just kind of shuffled backwards to my desk. And, I, and that was the point where I realized probably not everybody thinks about programming quite the same way <laughs> that I do. So I, long story short, I joined a company called Arnold Clark. And in the first 18 months of being that company, I was mentored by this really, really excellent Ruby developer called Adrian. And Adrian taught me everything that he knew and then some. And those 18 months were a period of complete transformation. And I started to understand that the game of software is not building stuff. I mean, it is, but <laughs> the most important thing when you're building these things is reducing the cost of change. That's what the game is about. Delivering value, business value, of course. We wouldn't be employed if we weren't doing that. We wouldn't be able to make any money if we weren't doing that. So value to the market is incredibly important, number one thing. But the number two thing is you've got to make the code easy to change so that you can continue to deliver that value at pace. And that was the first time I'd been introduced to that idea. And it kind of, it still is a really beautiful idea to me. Um, I keep kind of coming back to it every few years. I just kind of, every few days, actually, when I'm looking at our code, just think this is difficult to change. This is easy to change. This is, you know, and, and so the flexibility of the organization and the agility, dare I say the word, because Agile has <laughs> got all sorts of conversations now, of course. Um, 
the agility of the organization and then the engineering department as a whole is dictated by the design. And I love this idea that I was listening to a, a video about branding and um, the guy said, branding is not what you think of your company. It's what other, com other people think of your company. And if you don't consciously brand, you will brand by accident. And therefore, by accident, branding by accident is a catastrophe because everybody is, if you don't do it deliberately, the market's just going to determine what they think of you. And it's usually going to be bad. And I think of design as the same thing. If you don't consciously invest in design, design skills, design training, design thinking, then the design will just emerge and it will be a mess because you've not done it consciously. And if it's a mess, it'll be difficult to change. And I'm sure you both can relate to that in your various ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I like the analogy to branding because uh, what brand imaging are you giving the next reader of your code? <laughs> you know, when uh, you leave it for someone else to pick up. Um, and uh, yeah, so you, you got to be very conscious and intentional. I, we were mobbing this morning and someone asked the question, I wonder what they were trying to do. And someone responded, well, well, I believe their intent was this. And then they like read the name of the test, you know. And so <laughs> <laughs> if you if you don't do that, where you intentionally show your intent, uh, someone will make up some intent for you. <laughs> Who reads it next? Um, yeah, that, that was a really encouraging story with uh, the mentoring. Um, how did that... Um, Specifically, how did he mentor you in reducing cost of change? Yeah. So the first thing that he instilled in me was uh, a sense of discipline about testing. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I learned an awful lot about design after I left Arnold Clark. And but it was kind of these two phases. So there's this kind of absolutely hyper growth phase of 18 months and at the time I couldn't see it I just kept saying to him I just think I'm really terrible I'm really really bad at this <laughs> I remember thinking I'm going to be fired at any points any at some point soon because all of these people in this room are way better than me um and then I look back on that and I'm like wow that's what you need is people around you that are a lot better than you and then once I'd left Arnold Clark I started to kind of much, much more slowly read books on design and read books on, on watched a lot of videos. I watched a lot of Sandy Metz. And finally, maybe six or seven years after that, I had this light bulb moment of what object-oriented design was actually about. We can get into that in a moment. But to answer your question, what did he instill in me? A sense of discipline. The first thing he would say to me was, have you written tests for this? Mm. Right, well... No, not really. Delete <laughs> it all and start again. Have you written tests for this? S some. Let's have a look at them. Well, okay, that you need to add more tests there. That's not going to do it. Have you written tests? And then after maybe three months, finally I got the idea. And I, I'm a guy who likes to follow the rules. You tell me the rules and I'll follow them, um, which is problematic for entrepreneurship for all sorts of reasons that we might get into. Um, but yeah, so uh, I was just like, you tell me to write tests, I'm going to write tests. So a couple of months in, I was writing tests automatically for everything. 
They were terrible tests looking back, <laughs> but they were tests. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing was he was always trying to teach me how things are coupled together. He was trying to teach me the value of abstraction. And Adrian, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, um, he was an excellent practitioner. And he was a reasonable teacher, but he was always trying to find the words. And he would say things like, you see, these two objects know too much about each other. And they'd be like, what, are they friends? Are they mates? They live down the road or something? They don't, <laughs> don't understand. What do you mean know too much about it? They have brains. They have sentience. They're just like, it's just two bits of text on the screen. And it was a long, long, long time before I got that. And and he would, he, it's, I'm sure it was very frustrating for him because he would sit there and he'd say, so you see how this isn't right. And I'd be like, no. He's like, right, okay, okay. So you've got this object over here and this object over here, okay? So this object is reaching into this one. And oh, okay, okay. So it's reaching yeah. in. Yeah, okay. That's good, right? No, 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 that's bad. <laughs> oh, right, okay, okay. So you mean we should do this? Right. No, 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 no. So we went round in circles a lot. There was a lot of iteration. But finally, I started to get what he was putting down. Um, and that was kind of, uh, that, that was some of my first forays into understanding what encapsulation was. And now I understand it in a, in a very, very different way um, and hopefully a more advanced way. But he also showed me that when you changed one thing, the ripple effect of those changes, and then we would change other things and there was no ripple effects. I mean... I could talk about this forever, but um, when I left Arnold Clark, we used to have whiteboards. When Adrian came into Arnold Clark, they were doing an agile experiment. So we're, we were embedded in the marketing department and he had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. I mean, very, very envious position. And somebody had brought him in and this somebody said, we're going to do agile correctly. And so he hired Adrian. And Adrian was employee number one in this little department, and I was employee number two. And Adrian asked for two things when he first joined. He asked for a physical whiteboard and magnets. And he said, they just looked at me in this meeting. We were like, do you not want all this, like, we're going to give you a laptop, obviously, but do you know, want something more, a bit more high tech than that? No. He was like, no, whiteboard, magnets. Oh, and some little index cards as well. Sorry, three things. Yeah, that's what I want, three things. And they, were like, they just didn't get it. And he said, we're going to deliver software to you every two weeks. And, and the person who was running the department at the time, Carol, just looked back at him and said, that, that's ridiculous. You, can't, you cannot promise that. Just don't promise things you can't deliver. He was like, no, no, we're going to do it. And he delivered every two weeks for the next three years or something. Um. But so one of the many lessons I learned from Adrian was um, the value of physical artifacts um, and the impact of that on productivity and thus the impact on focus and the impact of focus on design and the impact of pairing and mobbing on design. And it's, you know, it's all connected together. Um, and so other organizations I've worked at have a JIRA board, and that's great. And like, how else are you going to do it if you're remote? But um, I can feel the difference. It's it's a very, very different environment to be in. So uh, a couple of things that you'd said earlier that 
so I'm, right now I'm reading the uh, the MIT. Uh, no one gets no uh, no one ever gets credit for problems that never occurred, right? And so a lot of that decoupling and the side effects thing certainly uh, reminds me of that. And uh, when you first started talking, I think uh, you know it's interesting because computer science degrees don't really talk too much about coupling, right? It's always just get the thing done. It's never about maintenance. It's never about long-term uh, longevity, things like that. And that's certainly something that I wish just would be taught more in the industry um, because I think people come into the industry rarely thinking about the long-term. So I think you were very lucky in having the introduction uh, um, in that way. Uh, um, do you think that, uh, you know, so, so that the, the story about seeing the very long jQuery and things along those lines, um, you know, it, it, it's something where they obviously never had, uh, the introduction otherwise, like, what would you say for, for people that, uh, find themselves in that situation, knowing what you know now? <laughs> Wow, that's a really, that is the hard problem to solve in our industry. <laughs> First thing is that I remember Gary Vaynerchuk, I'm, I follow a lot of kind of entrepreneurship stuff. And Gary Vaynerchuk works, I don't know, 18 hour days. And he started up his company, uh, Gary V Media. And he was quite transparent in a, in a lot of his interviews. And he said, I had to realize that not everybody wants the same things out of life than I do. Not everybody wants to stay at the office <laughs> for eight hours and build an, this incredible entrepreneurial journey and get a percentage of the profits, et cetera. And that's fine. Some people want to show up, work from nine till five and have a stable life and a good family life and get paid a normal market rate. And so it depends what kind of a programmer the person is. And I honestly think there are some programmers not throwing any shade on them, but they want to come in and do some typing and do a bit of thinking and leave. And that and that's where it begins and ends for them. And for those kind of people, I, I struggle to see how you can, like whenever I've talked to people about this kind of stuff, there's really, broadly speaking, two different reactions. There's the glaze over, there's a look into the middle distance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, that's nice. See you later. And there's the, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. How would you do that? And how would you, how would you deep, what do you mean by decoupling? And there's those that soak it up like a sponge. And there's people, what of a better phrase, that just don't really care that much. They like their job. They come in, they do their work, they go home. And that, and that's that. And so it's difficult to inspire people who are not really motivated to learn design uh, about that. And you can't instill it in people. You can't kind of get a big whip and crack it. And because of the supply demand nature of our profession, there's far more developers who are coming at nine, go home at five, do what they think is a reasonable job, but don't really grow. It's that old adage, do you have 10 years of experience or the same one year of experience repeated 10 times, right? Not there's anything wrong in going home at nine till five, you know, the Agile manifesto for software development teaches us move at sustainable pace and that's great. But um, there has to be that drive to learn and improve. 
because I mean, it took me so many years. I mean, <laughs> I've always been late to everything. I'm a slow learner. I'm a very, very slow learner. So it took me maybe eight years to really understand this thing that Adrian was trying to teach me back then. And I got a lot of stuff from Adrian, but it didn't all click, as I say, until eight years in. So if it's taking me, who's incredibly driven, I'm reading endless books, watching endless videos, that amount of time. Yeah. Like the obvious question is how how is that going to happen for either the person who isn't really that bothered about this stuff or the person who's interested? And that's why I made my book Software Design Simplified. Mm. Um, so it's like an 80 page book you can read it in a weekend and it gives practical examples of demonstrating cohesion coupling abstraction um uh, interfaces polymorphism everything everything that i know that's important about design apart from test-driven development actually is in that book and i tried to make it short and as accessible as i could nice right on right i have some more follow-up questions about your book but one thing uh, you were talking about really struck me because it made me reflect back on my career and like, why do I care about that stuff? You know what I mean? Like, um, and why do you care? Why do I care? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The rhetorical question. To, no, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think for me, what was interesting is I was at a place where we were going through an agile transformation of some kind. And part of that was it was kind of a swap from the person in the cubicle who makes stuff and then is disconnected from what they make. You know what I mean? So I was part of a team and we were making stuff and we reached the point in time where design starts to matter and I don't think we had it down. And so the system was starting to fall apart. And so I'm up in front giving a demo and the system's falling in part in front of the audience. And I'm like, I think I was very motivated after that point to not have that happen anymore. <laughs> and so... Um, so maybe it plays into kind of the system thing, right? Like, is the consumer getting feedback from, or is the creator getting feedback from the consumer? Like, do you have to kind of face face your demons or do you just type ship and then someone else will deal with the problems that come from it, right? And um, and uh, I really I really like your talk about ripple effects because, and oh, oh, because I remember uh, one place I was at, um, they were like, oh yeah, it's object oriented. And then, and then um, we're looking at the classes and we're like, oh, it looks like the class is a friend of every other class, right? So it's basically not objects. It's just everything knows about everything, right? And just so, a big party. Yeah, it's just a big party. Everyone's friends, right? And so <laughs> kind of I, I'm starting to see your connections because tying to reducing the cost of change, if you reduce the ripple effects by your changes, you're reducing the cost, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, I guess that makes me lead to... The question about your book, what what led you to write about that? Is it basically just this experience of the cost of change or, you know, what, what led you to put it in book format, I suppose? Great question. Um, last year, I'm now 47. So I was turning 47. And I had tried many, many, many other business ideas in my life. I've been a entrepreneur for a long, long time. And um, I realized that the kind of answer to all of this was staring in the face all along. I'd tried lots of other business ideas. I'd tried Google ads and I'd tried Facebook ads and I'd tried all sorts of other things I won't go into. Um, and I suddenly realized, hang on, I've been obsessed about design and programming <laughs> for 15 years. 
maybe I should teach that. And I absolutely love teaching. Just adore it. Mm. Um, I was I was reminiscing. My mum's 82. Um, and I was reminiscing with my mum the other day on the phone. And she said, do you remember that time when you didn't come home from college? And I was really worried. I said, yeah, I do. And I got talking to this guy. Like, I, I was due home at, like, I don't know, 1 p.m. or something. And I got talking to this guy, and he's like, so I'm, I'm doing this thing. I said, do you want some help with that? He's like, yeah, I'd love some help with that. And I stayed there until 3 p.m. Just I just got completely immersed in teaching him all this stuff and helping him and all this kind of stuff. And then I just I kind of awoke from the reverie, you know, and somebody came in and said, your mom's phoning about you. I think she's a bit worried about you, John. So I scuttled on home. And that was the one of the earliest teaching experiences I can remember. So all my career, I gravitated towards coaching, towards mentoring. And I kept hearing the same questions over and over again. And not even the same questions. I started to see that most people actually don't really understand, as you said, what objects are really about. They, they think they do because they've read a tutorial with a pet and a rabbit and a horse and a horse inherits the pet, but a pet doesn't bark because a, a horse can't bark, but the horse neighs. So we'll return a string with neighing and that explains objects. Really? We all understand yeah. Yeah, right. And that was right. a master's class. <laughs> so I was really, I was really fed up with seeing the same anti-patterns in code. And I kept explaining, I kept being really excited about interfaces and separating interfaces from behavior and having polymorphism and, you know, what you just said, Austin, about not letting the ripple changes uh, go out and like removing all inheritance wherever possible. Oh yeah, I know, I know it's controversial, but... Um, and so I kept explaining this stuff and my partner kept saying to me, you should really teach this stuff for a living. Like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And it was, uh, I just ended my last kind of business idea. And I'd suddenly realized at the beginning of last year, why don't I just start teaching programming? And so I was kind of mulling this over and I realized I have no assets to my name. I have no digital assets. I have no information assets at all. What am I doing? <laughs> this is crazy. I'm just about to turn 47. I'm nearly half a decade old. And all my 15 years, I have nothing that I can just hand people and say, here's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to write a book. My birthday was on the 29th of July. And I said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to publish it by the 29th of July. And my partner said, that's three months away. It's like, yeah, correct. What's your next question? <laughs> um so i actually in effect wrote kind of two copies of the same book i wrote one for ruby and one for c sharp um and my tactic there was a new uh excellent c sharp developer called milan and um i said do you have an advertising slot for my book that's not been yet written on the 29th of july so i paid him for the advertising slot and i was like that's going to get me to write it and indeed it did so I wrote it in Ruby first, and then I had 10 days to convert it into C-sharp on there. So that's what I did. I like the idea of pay, paying for the advertising before you made it. This <laughs> gives you a very hard deadline. <laughs> There's an app that I use called Intend. Um, it's absolutely awesome. And you can set penalties for yourself, financial penalties. So I have a goal of posting on LinkedIn every single day. 
And if I miss that goal, uh, then I'm charged $5. And if I miss it again, I'm charged $10. And it escalates up to, I think it's $700 or something. So <laughs> where does the money go? Who's, uh, is someone making a lot of money from uh, my bad habits or not? <laughs> Absolutely. That's how they funded, I think. I think I've, I've ponied up $5 since I joined ah. um, a few years ago. In fact, sorry, that's B-Minder. Intend is a goal setting thing. It's B minder that I'm talking about. And yeah, they've got a free plan and they, they've got a paid one as well, but it's a, it's a really great way of getting yourself into good habits. Nice. Nice. Fantastic. Well, this might be a good time to transition. I heard you talk about Ruby. Um, and I think I've heard you mention the word domain once or twice here. Uh, so uh, maybe it's a good time to transition, transition to, Domain modeling in Rails plus mobbing. Uh, what are you thinking here? So um, I've seen a lot of anti-patterns over the 15 years, but the one that keeps coming up time and time again that I'm still obsessed with um, is separating the domain from the infrastructure. Hexagonal architecture, clean architecture, um, a guy called James Shaw um, has come up with this absolutely brilliant concept called nullable architecture, which is nullable infrastructure. I'm so sorry, nullable infrastructure. Um, and I could talk about that all day, all night. Don't really have time to get into it right now. But that hexagonal, all these different approaches, they all have one thing in common. And actually, you can maybe talk about Unison. That's why my that's where my interest in functional programming comes from as well. Is separating the domain logic from the infrastructure. And so what I mean for people who may be not familiar with that concept is infrastructure is things like databases, network, IO. Mm -hmm. Business logic is the stuff that the business talks about. Can we invoice this customer, please? Can we create a book order for this customer and then send them a notification and in the notification drive them back to the checkout where they can buy more books mm -hmm. yeah. and so what i see a lot of in code bases is developers having writing the code with this interleaved mix of we'll we'll build someone using stripe why stripe matter well it really matters because we're using their api yes i know we're using their API, but what's the business logic here? We're using Stripe. Yes, I, I understand that. Okay, great. So we're taking $30 from their card. Okay. Why is that? Because we're using Stripe. No, no, stop <laughs> obsessing about Stripe and the database. As Bob Martin says in his uh, lost years of architecture talk that I've watched maybe 10 times now, your app is not the database. Yeah. Nobody, no business owner comes to a developer and says, can I have a database, please? Can I have network and IO? It must speak over HTTP2. Don't give me any of that HTTP1. Oh, I don't like it. They don't care. <laughs> and so what I'm fascinated about is how do you pull these two topics apart? Mm -hmm. And the domain modeling bit is the really super interesting bit to me. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm a technology nerd. I love tech, but I'm far more interested in business problems and how we can elegantly describe that in the code. Uh, and I remember Dan North um, saying one of the most successful software applications he ever had the privilege of working on was, it was a trading app. And one day he, 
and you heard the developers and the traders talking about the code and they were around the developer's machine and they were both speaking about the same language. They said, like, what, what are you talking about? And, he was, and they were, oh, we're talking about the code. So the code mapped to the domain expert's language perfectly. And I, I did this experiment, Arnold Clark, where I took uh, two, people, two people from the admin department and I said, can you read my code and understand what's going on? Because you should be able to. And so he sat down and they were like, oh, well, I think this is doing that. I was oh, interesting. So why do you think that? Oh, well, they th I, you've used this word and it means that, doesn't it? No, no, it doesn't mean that at all. What would you call it? Oh, I would call it, oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. They thought I was absolutely mad. But like that's an idea I've had for a long, long time. How can we use a test our domain logic? How can we use a test our code with domain language experts? And they should be able to read our code and make sense of it. That's the bar that I'm aiming for. And so <clears throat> in Rails, that Rails makes that, I hope nobody minds me saying, sorry to all you Rails fans out there, extremely difficult sometimes because it wants to, the database is the model, is the business logic. It's all the same. No, it's it's really not the same. <clears throat> Pardon me. So I've, for many, many years, I've played around with lots of ideas for how you create Rails apps that have domain logic over here, and it's clear what the app is doing, and infrastructure over here. It's really, really difficult. I've read an excellent book recently. I started an excellent book recently by David Bryant Copeland, I believe his name is called Sustainable uh, Web Development in Rails. He used to be the head of engineering at Stitch Fix. And everything in his book is actually done for real in a real Rails app. And he talks a lot about service objects, which is a topic that's dear to my heart, um, and a whole bunch of stuff. But the question is, of course, this is the Mob Mentality podcast. So where does mobbing come into it with all of this stuff? And I believe that that human connection that mobbing facilitates is irreplaceable you cannot get it by sitting on your own in a room with headphones on it is just impossible you can maybe chat to somebody over zoom whatever but pairing and mobbing in particular i mean my dream i'll tell you what my dream is in terms of my dream way way of working would be to have business owners like the ceo maybe not the ceo he's a bit of a busy man probably but the cto um the cfo Somebody from sales, somebody from engineering, somebody, somebody from engineering, whatever we're talking about, you know what I mean, from marketing, five, six people all in a room and the developer being able to move so fast that it would say, what does this mean to you, this word? And the marketer would say, well, I, that doesn't mean anything to me. What should the word be? So kind of a combination of event storming, DDD, domain-driven modeling, but as you're writing the flipping code. You know, that's what it should be. That's what programming should be. Everybody working together. And instead, what we do, we chop everybody up. We put them in little boxes. You're over here. No, you can't talk to this person. You can't talk to customers. Developers talking to, oh my gosh, where we would be. We'd actually be probably better off, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this kind of mobbing and domain modeling. I've read Scott Voloshin's book, Domain Modeling Made Functional. And that absolutely blew my mind. He's got some incredible videos out there where he talks about this exact thing about live modeling in front of an audience of business people, the domain concept. So what, what we're doing, we're building a 
deck of cards is one of his examples. And he's like, so you ask them all these silly questions. Like, of course, a pack has so many sweets. And like, well, you don't know this. And so he he writes it in and it's all in types. And I'm really interested in that as well, of course. And then he said, very often they look at me at the end and, and they say, well, that's all great, Scott. But where's the code? And he points to the screen. He's like, this is the code. This is the exact code. And they're so used to techies talking in tech and talking about databases and servers and all this nonsense that they don't understand. Oh, hang on. Has he just been coding in the language that I'm talking about? Whoa. It's like, no, that should not be a whoa moment for anybody. That should be just how it's done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been... Uh, <clears throat> I'm reading... Uh, the last couple of weeks, picked up the domain-driven design book, and uh, it's it's been really cool to see what you what you're talking about. That how testing, building uh, domain models, uh, and baking it into the code itself, it, it it implies that there's good collaboration with everyone who's needs to be there, right? Everyone who's involved, and um, and it's it's a really fun moment to get to. Um, I actually had a moment. Uh, a couple months ago, where we just finished writing some code, um, and it was doing uh, some domain stuff. Uh, but the way it was executed, it was very techy. You know what I mean? The the kind of thing it was. And uh, we just finished mobbing. I was working on it alone, and I'm like, I'm like, God, oh, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't like really speak to it. And then someone came by, and they're like, Oh, uh, this looks like a good thing for a fluent builder. And so we turned it into a fluent builder, and then now it reads almost like English, right? Like, oh, uh, define this, this, win this, do this, win this, do this, win this, do this. And he's like, yeah, I've done this before where I can even hand this to business people and they can make sure that this makes sense. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, maybe they don't look at the builder class itself, but they look how it's used to kind of build out the domain logic. And um, it is just so cool because when you talk to the people using it, that's exactly how they talk, right? And so, <laughs> I it, it's a really fun moment to get to, and uh, I'm I'm glad uh, you're you're excited about it as well. <laughs> um, and for you in mobbing, um, so you've talked about your dream ways of working, um, and you, it sounds like you've done some domain modeling in Rails. Was that done with mobbing? Has this been a, an experiment for you yet, or is it just kind of more of a a dream <laughs> it's it's more of a dream really um, okay but i have reached points where i've been refactoring the code mm -hmm. and you can start to see the domain pop out yeah and i am totally addicted to refactoring yes <laughs> absolutely a hundred percent yeah i if i don't do it for a while i get the shakes um <laughs> I remember when I I was uh, attending a little meetup, a, a little Ruby meetup, and I'd been using Ruby for maybe a year or something, just dabbling with it. I had no confidence really to do anything on my own. And um, we're doing this little cutter, and this guy said, oh, well, we'll just invert this and flip this, and blah, blah, blah. I watched him do it. I was like, how, how on earth did you know to do that? because he was clearly just operating from instinct from a very, very deep place of, of knowledge. And he said, oh, you just do it for about five to seven years. And there was, I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, totally serious. Like, it takes you five years to get there. And of course, five years passed in the blink of an eye. And I still wasn't even remotely where this guy was. But 
that really opened up my mind to how how it can go if you start to really practice this stuff every day, every week. And mm-hmm. so now when I'm looking at code and I keep refactoring, I keep playing around with it, and then I see finally the domain model occurred. It did happen when I was working on some code at work recently. Um, I was given leeway to work with this piece of code that was to do with security. Um, mm-hmm. And we're using this external security product. Uh, I actually can't remember what it's called. It will come back, Castle. That was it, Castle.io. Very, very good, uh, very good product. But all the code was all about Castle and Castle this and authentication token that. And it was really difficult to detangle. And I started pulling apart the code. And I just sat there at my kitchen table for like five hours, six hours. And it just went by in the blink of an eye. And finally, I started messing around. I was like, oh, no, this is too abstracted. This is not abstracted enough. And then finally, the design became clear. I'm like, there's my domain logic right there. If it's in this situation, then do this, else do this. Wow. And I just love that moment. You keep wrestling with it, wrestling. As you said, it's a feeling for me now. It doesn't feel right. It feels too, ugh. It doesn't feel clean. It doesn't feel good. It feels like everything's intertwined and intertangled. And then you keep working it, keep working it, working it, like kneading it like dough. And then finally, you get that moment. Like if you forget to brush your teeth, that feeling. (laughs) <laughs> yes it's like not brushing your teeth <laughs> it's a really good one yeah um and so I've, I've i've been doing a lot of pairing at my current day job and i've been pairing with various junior engineers and this one guy i'm sure you won't mind me mentioning by name peter and peter and i have been pairing oh, for like months and months and months now so it's not quite mobbing but we've kept going around to bits of the code base and I keep explaining to him polymorphism and interfaces. And it's taken him a while, but finally one day he was like, oh, oh, oh I see, because if you shield this from other changes and, blah, 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 and then all your domain logic's here and then the rest of it, ah, oh, I get it, I get it. Yeah. Now he's off on another team implementing some of these ideas and it's just, oh, it's the best. The best thing about teaching and people take the knowledge make it their own and apply it in their own way. Fantastic. All right. Well, it might be a good time to switch to joyful programming, uh, <laughs> uh, inspired by Unison. So, uh, what were you thinking there? Speaking of joy. Yeah. Um, wow. 10 minutes. So <laughs> Unison is a new language. And the moment anybody says to me, it's a new language, I say, well, have a nice life. I'm going to have to do something more interesting. I'm not interested in new languages at all. That's what I used to say. I don't care about new languages. All of this, every, you must learn a language every year. Yeah, whatever. I know Ruby. I know Rails. That's enough for me. Blah, blah, blah. And then I played around with a couple of different languages that aren't dissimilar to Ruby. And I was like, yeah, this is rubbish. I don't, I don't want to learn new languages. And then I learned Elm. And in the first 10 hours of using Elm, I had to Google for something once. I was like, okay, my mind is totally blown. This language is teaching me the language through the error messages. How is this even possible? And I could literally program by guessing. It would give me an error. The compiler would give me an error. And I'd be like, "Mm -hmm. not sure what that means. Maybe it means I've forgotten that field. 
I would add the field and it would say, correct, next problem, next problem, next problem, just like a pair would. And then the, it passed, passed the compiler. I was like, oh, well, I've no idea how this is going to run. You run it in a browser and it worked instantly with no defects. And that was the moment where I was like, I think I actually am interested in new language. It's just I've been choosing the wrong languages. <laughs> <laughs> and so then that that was on the front end. Elm is in a bit of a funny state at the moment. It's kind of not clear whether it's still alive. Some people are saying it's dead. Other people are saying no, it's still alive. I still love the language. I still think it's just a fascinating language. And so I've done bits and pieces with that. But I always wanted something like Elm, but on the back end, because Elm is exclusively for front end. It compiles down to JavaScript. And um, I should say, I don't get the whole JavaScript thing at all. I do not get the appeal, never have, don't understand it. I once really upset my colleagues at Arnold Clark by standing up in front of a crowded room on demo day and, and uh, present, proudly presenting a slide that said, the best JavaScript is no JavaScript. And this, <laughs> this was before the no JavaScript thing was a popular thing to say. And they hate it. I had to buy donuts. They really hated me for like two weeks. Anyway, um, which was tough for the people pleasing part of me, my, my personality. So anyway, the point is um, that experience with Elm, I was like, I want that on the back end. Give me something like that on the back end and I will snap it up. And Unison, like maybe 3% of Unison is that. And then 97% of Unison is completely reinventing how we build software. What they're doing is, I mean, I've never seen language really try and do this before. As I say, I've not learned a lot of languages. I'm sure there's ones that have been and gone and, and are completely obsolete who've tried this, but Basically, in unison, they've taken all the things that are rubbish about programming and chucked them in the bin and said, we're going to reinvent everything. You, you're going to reinvent, yeah, we're going to reinvent everything. So how's it going to interop with other languages? Oh, no, it's not. Okay. So I guess we just push up to GitHub. Oh, no, GitHub isn't the thing. We've rebuilt our own GitHub. Oh, okay. So it's incredibly ambitious thing that they're trying to do but I used it over Christmas for three weeks and in the end I just could not stop using this language and now every single time I go to any other language any other framework see any other code this would be so much better in unison oh I have to do this so in build in unison as a very brief summary there are no builds so the big idea in unison is everything is content addressed so you have some code you write a function, you don't have bags of text files. The whole idea of a code base is lots and lots of files on disk is completely gone, chucked it out. So what you do is you write a function, uh, the function compiles, and then you add it to your code base. And the code base is stored in a local database, the SQLite database to be precise. And every function is hashed. It knows the abstract, abstract abstract syntax tree and knows the AST of every function and it throws away all your variable names it says we don't care about names names are just metadata on things and it creates this structure it stores it in your database and then you write and you add it and then you delete it from your temporary file and it's in your database and you can retrieve it and edit it and put it back in and then you write another function that calls that other function and you keep doing that and so because every function has a hash 
when you change a function, you're not really changing a function, you're adding a new function to, to the database. So it's an immutable append only database for your code. And that has some unbelievable implications, like literally unbelievable hours. It's a pretty simple idea, hashes, hashes as functions, right? Yeah, yeah, every function's hashed and it gets a hash and that's that. Okay, that's really geeky, what does that mean? Well, it means that refactoring is instant. Names are just metadata. So you can just say, change the name of this function across 10,000 places in your code base instantly with one command, done. Wow, okay, uh, what else? Well, it means you have no builds. What? Yeah, we have no builds because every function knows the hash of every other function. And because functions can be serialized and sent over the wire, one server can set, talk to another server and just say, I don't have that function, just send it to me, please. And so that means your code can deploy itself. That means you don't need to have builds. So the whole CI goes away. You don't need CI, no CI tools, no CI box, nothing running your tests. Speaking of tests, what about tests? Aren't they slow? Tests are really slow. I wait for goodness knows how long to run, 30 minutes to run my tests in Rails. How long do I wait in unison? About a second. How's that even possible? Because all tests are cached. Why is that? Because if you're testing a pure function, it stands to reason that the output is always going to be the same for the hash of that function. So it just creates a massive hash table and hashes every single test. So you never run your whole test suite. You only run the tests that you added since last time. If you modify one function, obviously those tests will rerun, but then it's all cached. So you just run the test, it completes in a second, and then you move on to your next bit of functionality. Run all your tests, second, half a second, quarter of a second. Deploys are a single function call. So you run your code and in the you say, I want to run my code in the cloud, thank you very much. And it goes, hang on, yeah, it's deployed, it's in the cloud now. And it's one mm. line, it's one line of code. I've never seen anything like it. So this started to make me question everything that we do. Hang on, so builds are nonsense, aren't they? Yep. I'm waiting for tests is nonsense. Uh-huh. And I started to realize, why did I love Elm? Why did I love Unison? It's because I want programming to be joyful. And there's all this joyless nonsense that we do. Because all of this is true about Unison, there are no YAML files, there are no config files. There's no Kubernetes config because all the code knows how to deploy other bits of code. So you can write deployments in Unison if you want that are really complex. Everything is Unison. There are no third-party bash script. The whole bash script's gone. Shell script's gone. It's just bonkers. joy. Pure joy. <laughs> and all that's left is the business problem you're trying to solve, the business logic. Dang, dang. Yeah, so um, I'm feeling quite inspired and very curious because it's it's like, as you said, something uh, completely new and uh, unconventional. So, uh, but I think we are at time, unfortunately. So maybe that's a good teaser uh, for maybe a future ep episode or future investigation. But uh, I just want to say thank you, John, so much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure. I've really enjoyed learning about the reducing the cost of change, domain modeling and rails and pairing slash mobbing. And this unison thing is uh, quite, quite, uh, 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 you know, inspiring and uh, making me want to dig into it. Um, but we are at time. Is there anything you'd like to share or plug before we close? Totally. So I work for a company called Bigger Pockets. Mm -hmm. um, we are we work with Rails. We have an excellent culture. 
Um, we love pairing. Um, we love leveling each other up. There's lots of coaching available. There, We've got an amazing training budget and it's a really great team to be a part of. Some very, very talented engineers. So biggerpockets.com slash careers, I believe, will get you there. And then my own business is called Joyful Programming. Uh, joyfulprogramming.com. Nice and easy to remember. Uh, there's not much there at the moment. It's just a book a call form. But if you're interested in uh, talking to me about anything to do with cost of change, especially in Rails apps, nice. feel free to shoot me a line. Right on, right on. Well, thanks again, John. We really appreciate you having on the show. Uh, to our audience, uh, please share this episode with someone who's uh, maybe experienced some some uh, cost of change or uh, is interested in uh, domain modeling and having some joy in their programming. And uh, so, uh, yeah, please like, uh, subscribe, uh, share, uh, comment on YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, and more. And uh, mob on and have a good one, everybody. Bye. Thank you for Bye, having everyone. Me. Thank you. Bye.